Welcome to The Gaslighting Effect. I'm Angela, writer, teacher, cult survivor. After decades of being silenced, I'm finally finding my voice. Hello, listeners. So I'm making this recording at the very end of the first week of school. Uh, There are a few updates. After Tuesday, there were already three new COVID cases in my county. Um, Two from staff members and one from a high school student. But the county basically just sent out letters saying that these were isolated cases. And as far as I know, we just continued on as business as usual. Um, I don't know. I mean... I'm a little nervous about the fact that that happened after only two days, and we have to be able to do this clear till Christmas and not get sick, right? Crossing my fingers on that. I honestly don't know what it would take for this district to to close their schools even temporarily at this point, because they have said straight out that they know there will be cases uh, whenever people bring up the notion that they're worried about the health and safety of staff and students. You know, basically the superintendent just says, well, we know there will be cases. The school board says, well, we know there will be cases. Um, And it's dropped at that. So I honestly have no idea what the threshold is for this district to change their COVID plan going forward. I kind of doubt they have a threshold or have a plan. There was a news article that came out a few days ago where the superintendent told the reporter that because there were over a thousand staff members and only 20 resigned and and I think there were 60 or so virtual teachers, you know, who opted who were able to go virtual. So first of all, there are some counties where you're you're able to just choose to go virtual. That is not my county. Okay, so in order to go virtual as a teacher in my county, you have to have a note from your doctor. You have to use the Americans with Disabilities Act legislation to secure your appointment as a virtual teacher. If you're living with someone who is at risk, someone who's a recovering cancer patient, for instance, or who ha- who has, I guess they don't call it emphysema anymore. They call it something else. Um, I don't remember what they call it. If you're living with someone with a lot of pre-existing conditions, you know, I have a coworker whose son has Crohn's disease, for instance. That's not enough in my county to get an appointment as a virtual teacher. It has to be a health risk that is pertaining to you personally and you need to have the doctor's certification to show that you need this accommodation. Teachers were not really consulted before these changes were made about bringing the kids back into the building. So there was really not buy-in from staff. (laughs) I can paint you a picture of the faculty meeting where our principal announced that children 
from K to 12 were all coming back into the building at once, I can paint you a picture of the teachers' faces and how long they were and how flabbergasted people were and the fact that the most quiet, most laid-back male teacher in the building actually started yelling in the middle of the meeting. <laughs> I had never seen that before. Let's just say that this was not a, a decision that was made with the health and safety of the staff in mind, nor was it made after consulting with the staff or even taking a basic measurement of how they felt. I mean, not even the community was sent a survey. You know, There was no broad survey done to see how the community and the staff felt about these sudden changes. So imagine my shock when I'm reading this article. Our superintendent talked to the press and in this article he says that because only like 20 teachers or so staff members resigned and you know, a small number went virtual because of this or took leave. That means that we got buy-in from teachers. Like he actually used the word buy-in. I was flabbergasted. I mean, talk about trying to spin things. That's like saying that the women who died in the triangle shirt, shirtwaist factory, um, were buying into their working conditions because they were still there. They hadn't quit or resigned. I mean, is that not the equivalent? Like, you're still working here. You haven't quit. Therefore, you've bought in. Uh, no. It's propaganda. I understand that he's trying to spin it to make the school system look good and the district look good, but, but that's really not honest. Right, let's get that out right now. That's really not honest. There's this group that has formed to oppose the irresponsible throwing of children into schools at once in the middle of the flu season as the pandemic spikes. The positivity test rate, by the way, yesterday went up to 10% in this community. 10%! Okay? <laughs> so this big group of community members formed to cast light on the reasons why this was maybe not the best idea to return to school, right? And there were teachers in this community, and they post things on Twitter regularly, and they have a Facebook group, and they have a petition that a lot of people have signed, and they've gone to the school board, and they're constantly writing letters to the editor and letters to the superintendent, and people who have the power to change things. But all of these attempts have been ignored. And there are a lot of people, a lot of people in this group. And the teachers who've spoken up have mostly been pulled aside by their administrators in their building and have been told not to make the school system look bad. They've been given a copy of the school board policy and been reminded basically that they can lose their job if they make the school or the school system look bad. So then there's been this mass issue of teachers having to go back and delete things they've written online, delete their feelings, and put on a happy face and pretend they're happy about it. So amidst all of this and 
orders coming from the top down telling teachers to basically be quiet about how they feel and staff members to shut up on social media. Our superintendent goes to the press and tells them that that they have buy-in from all the staff. I, I'm sorry, but I just can't quite get over that. I, ooh, it's really misleading. I digress. So, I was going to tell you guys what it was like to be back in the classroom this week. I feel grateful that so far I do not feel sick. That's good, right? Okay, let's start with the pros because we need some good, some good vibes going on here. I have to admit that it is really nice to have small classes. There are certain personalities that every year are very hard to corral. They need a lot of attention. They have a hard time sitting or standing still. They don't necessarily listen or they argue with you. Um, they announce in the middle of the class that they hate music and they hate this song and no, they don't want to do this and they give you attitude and those personalities are still there. That said, I am pleasantly surprised by how much easier it is to give those students the attention they need when there are fewer kids in the classroom. It's just more manageable. And in particular, the students who are, who are behaving this way because they want attention are less likely to behave in this way because they're getting more attention from the beginning. I'm not going to say that these students are any easier than they were last year, but it is amazing to me that so many of the behaviors are easier to manage when the class sizes are smaller, when the class sizes are between four and ten. It's pretty incredible. So that's a big pro. Another big pro is that I am, I really do enjoy seeing the kids. I really do enjoy working with the kids. I mean, it's hard not to be able to fist bump or side hug or do any of those things to connect that we used to be able to do. But, But it's nice to see them and be able to talk to them. So those, those are all definite pros, and I want to put those out there because they're important. They matter. I'm trying to, trying to present things in a balanced way here. What's difficult about kids coming back into the building is that because I'm teaching music, there are just a lot of limitations on what we can and cannot do with the kids. So I have one group of students that I'm teaching in person and then I have another small group of students that I'm teaching over Zoom. And what I'm finding is that the Zoom kids really get shortchanged because I have to focus my attention, my classroom management attention on the students that are there. So, I'll give you an example here. So, you know, 
there there are certain things we can't do in music in person. So, for instance, when we were online, the children could sing full voice at the top of their lungs at home if they were in a safe place. Now that the kids in school are in a room with me, they can sing softly as long as their masks are all the way over their nose and their mouth and are fitted properly and are preferably 10 feet apart, which is not ideal because I can only fit six children in my room if they're 10 feet apart. And a lot of my classes are more than six children large. Um, so in that, that sense, the virtual students have an advantage because they can actually sing full voice, whereas the students in person can't. Students in person have to hum or sing softly. I don't really feel like I can sing at them full voice. I don't feel like that's really safe. So what I'm doing is I'm recording myself singing and I'm recording music and I'm recording my directions. And then we have this big TV and it's projected onto the television. So then computerized me teaches the last lesson and computerized me gives directions and you know, the recording of me sings to the students. And that works. It's a lot of prep time and recording, which is, it's fine. It's fine. That works. Um, but the place where the virtual st students get shortchanged is in the interactions. Because I can hand out a test or an assessment to the in-person students and give them pencils and say, here, do this. And they do it. And they hand it in and it's finished and there I have data and I know where they are and I know what they're learning but for the students online I have to put that assessment up in some sort of virtual format like on Google Draw and then they have to figure out how to fill that in on Google Draw or how to print it out and write on it and then take a picture and upload it and if they can figure out how to do it on Google Draw, then they can also turn it in. But not all of my students know how to turn in work. The older students are fine with it. But the younger students, especially the kindergartners and the first graders, they have a really hard time with just the basic steps of how to open a file, how to fill in a file, how to turn in a file. I mean, th these are brand new skills for them. So I don't get reliable data, data for my students that are virtual. I can't enforce that they are doing the work that I assign them. I can't expect them to make due dates. And without a sample, a consistent sample of everybody's work and everybody's knowledge, it's really hard for me to measure where the children are. And if I can't measure where all the children are, I also can't measure how much they've grown. Can't measure their growth. So that's one way that the virtual students get shortchanged. That and the attention piece. You know, there's education, the part of education where you're teaching knowledge and skill, and then there's the part of education where you're just doing basic classroom management. This is how you behave. And before this pandemic, I sort of saw those as meshing together 
as being part of one job, but now since we've had the pandemic, one thing I can say is I feel like it has really separated those two parts of teaching. Because with the virtual students, if they have a parent with them at home or an adult with them at home, I'm not in charge of monitoring when they use the bathroom. I'm not in charge of telling them where to stand. I don't have to tell them to sit up. They might not even have their camera on. All of that behavioral management, for the most part, unless it's blatantly, obviously wrong, that's not up to me. The behavioral piece is mostly up to the person the child is with. So I just teach when the child is online. When the child is at school, it is a darn good thing. Oh, whatever. I'm anonymous. I can cuss. It is a damn good thing that my lessons are recorded. Because there are some lessons this week I've taught where if I were simply standing up and walking around and teaching in a traditional way while also trying to teach kids online, there is absolutely no way in hell that I would be able to teach anything. Because I have to wipe down bathroom passes and give them to kids and then wipe them down again when they return those bathroom passes. Have to radio to the office every time a child has to use the bathroom. I have to constantly tell the kids where to stand because not all these kids will stand or sit where they're supposed to sit the whole class without constant reminders. I have to uh, do classroom management stuff basically. Things where I monitor behavior. And the monitoring of behavior in some of these classes this week has completely taken my time and energy to the point that the recording of me talking and singing really is doing the hardcore educational work. Because I can't do two things at once. There's only one of me. So... I guess more than anything, I'm seeing the multiple hats that teachers wear. And I think it's really telling that it's so important to so many parents that students come back into the building. Because even though we have been providing the educational piece for them this entire time, what the parents are missing is is the behavioral piece and the constant monitoring of their children. What the parents want is to not have to constantly monitor and correct their children's behavior and tie their shoes and make decisions like when can they eat and when can they use the bathroom and just basically keeping them physically safe. Child care. Okay, it's child care. These are the things that the parents are really missing. These are the things the parents really want from teachers. And I'm not saying that parents don't want teachers to educate their kids. They do. I'm just saying these tasks that are seen as more menial, menial and that are less valued in our society are actually the most valuable tasks to parents. We should really stop undervaluing the work of childcare in our country. It is super important. You know, women stay home from work so often, and men too, to take care of their children for free 
They aren't making any money. It's their child. But the work they're doing is not super fun. It's not necessarily intellectually stimulating. And it's a lot of work. Like, a lot of work. And it's super important. So could we just... You know, I think I want to end this podcast episode on this note today. Could we just start to value childcare just generally? Like, if we just take the education aspect out of it completely, let's appreciate and find some way to compensate people who do childcare work in our country. It's so important. And with that, I hope you guys have a great day. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining me on the Facebook page called Spotlight on Spiritual Abuse. You can message me there or post. And remember to always trust your instincts. Don't let others tell you how to think.